0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is John List. John is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago, who has been a pioneer in economics, applying the experimental method to real-world questions in real-world settings, what we call field experiments. He's not only published prolifically in academic journals, but has also taken his skills to the policy world, um, among other things, serving on the President's Council of Economic Advisors uh, and in the private sector, um, working as chief economist at Uber, Lyft, and most recently at Walmart. His new book is called The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. It talks about the things he's learned over the years from tra- about translating rigorous academic research into real-world outcomes that go beyond just a pilot experiment and how that can fail. Um, I really love this book as it makes a lot of important points that even academics who are familiar with the experimental method and use it in their research um, may not have thought of. Uh, it also hammers home in a very accessible way the value that incorporating economics ways of thinking can help both public and private sector organizations to become more successful. Um, and I think This is in ways that are really distinct from the kinds of contributions made by, say, MBAs on the one hand, or data scientists who come from a a non-social science background on the other. Um, And I'm a big fan of this. Um, In fact, here at the University of San Francisco, I've created a new master's program that's focused specifically on training students in this skill set. And I'm going to be sending all of our incoming fall class a copy of this book as motivational reading to get them excited about uh, digging into this this set of skills and understanding really what it is they're, they're embarking on learning. So, John, welcome. So glad to have you on the podcast.
0: Peter, it's so happy to be here, and I really, really support um, your enthusiasm for my book. And I'm going to (laughs) say thanks a lot for your support over the years and, and, you know, most recently, your support of the voltage effect.
1: Yeah, no, very, um, very happy to. Um, So so to start, why don't you tell us... you know, just the, the title is, is how to make, has, mentions how to make great ideas scale. So scale is, is kind of a, it feels a little bit buzzwordy to me. So what is it, what does it mean to scale something as opposed just to, you know, grow?
0: Yeah. You know, I think where you should start is you should say, I try something in the Petri dish or in one research setting and I find a good result. Let's say I find that my program works. Now, when I think about scaling, I think about will that program work in other situations that are like this one? And that's something I call horizontal scaling. And to put some, some meat on those bones, what I'm thinking about is I do a research study in Chicago and I find a great result, then can I try the same thing in Detroit, Denver, Boston, et cetera, with the same level of success? I think about that as horizontal scaling. Now, another way to think about scaling is vertical scaling. So I try it in Chicago Heights at one site, for example, around Chicago and one site. And can I then replicate that success at, say, 50 or 100 sites around Chicago, where I'm hiring the same inputs from the same input market. See, the difference between vertical and horizontal scaling is that in the horizontal case, I'm hiring inputs across input markets. And in the vertical scaling case, I'm hiring inputs from the same input market in which I'm generating the initial success. So for me, scaling is about finding a result early on in one setting and then thinking scientifically, will that result hold with the same level of voltage when I vertically and horizontally scale?
1: Right. Okay. So so I guess to you know, horizontal scaling to put it in the social science jargon would be more about the external validity of the experiment. So you can do it in one place if you try to do the exact same thing with different people or something different about the context, then will it still work? Or just like, you know, if if I give a medicine to, you know, one person who's age 70 and lives in one community and has a certain, you know, illness, then can I give that, will the medicine have the same effect on, you know, a person age 50 in a totally different community or a different ethnic background or, or whatever else. So trying to make those comparisons. And then the, the horizontal scaling, that's a little bit more what, what I, I guess we might think of normally when we think about growth. Um, but, but your point is, it's not just kind of, it doesn't end up being just more of the same. It's not doing the same thing several times, because once you take into account that you're doing, like you said, that you need more resources to, to bring it to that larger level, then that may change what's, what's possible or how it works out. Um, so anyway, so your book, this is a little bit abstract. I mean, your book is full of uh, all sorts of great examples. So, um, so why don't you pick one and just sort of, uh, launch us with that to, to give us some, uh, something concrete to latch onto.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so let's think about an early childhood program that I started in a suburb of Chicago called Chicago Heights. So this early childhood program was in partnership with Steve Levitt and Roland Fryer. Your listeners might know them. They're brilliant economists, one's at Harvard and, and one's here with me at the University of Chicago. So back in 2010, we opened a pre-K program that was meant to do really three things. The first one was to help the children of Chicago Heights, the three, four, and five-year-olds. The second thing is to learn about the education production function, so to test elements of economic theory and to figure out you know, what are the best ways to teach three, four, and five-year-olds so they end up having great lives. And then the third one was to create a program and curriculum that we could scale. So we did this for about four years from 2010 to 2014. And we found out that two of those three things we were able to accomplish. So on the one hand, we created a great program that helped a lot of children in Chicago Heights. Check. The next hand, Well, we were able to write a bunch of academic papers. Okay, that's great. Because that teaches others about what we've learned scientifically in the Petri dish. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Now, the third is where I met some resistance. So here, Peter, I started talking to policymakers. And I was met with a typical criticism that went as follows. They said, look, John your program looks great, but don't expect it to scale. And at this point, I was taken back a bit because I had been doing field experiments for 25 years. I started to do field experiments in the early 90s. And, you know, my work early on was at baseball card conventions. So I would get the criticism a lot that, look, do you have external validity or do your results generalize? Mm-hmm. So I had heard that criticism before. That wasn't new. That goes all the way back to the old psychology literature, Campbell and Stanley, and even before that. Mm-hmm. But but now this was a new criticism because they were basically saying, your curriculum and your program won't scale. So I said to them, why don't you think it will scale? And they typically didn't know. They said things like, it doesn't have the silver bullet. And you know what? Everyone tells us they have a great program. And when we roll it out, it's never as effective as they promised us. So now after this conversation, a few things came to my mind. Um, Issue number one was, have we been going about the research process in the social sciences in the correct way if we truly want to change the world at scale. And then secondly, I started to wonder, are the policymakers correct? Is it true that what happens in the small doesn't typically happen in the large and that it's a silver bullet problem? So so this point in 2014-2015, it really caused me to step back and begin an academic research agenda in writing about the science of using science.
1: Mm-hmm. So what is a what is a silver bullet? What do they what do they have in mind when they're saying that?
0: They really couldn't articulate about, you know, what is the silver bullet? Because mm-hmm. I said, look, should I go to Walmart? And pick up a few dozen because I really want to continue to develop programs that help the world. And, you know, they said, we really don't know, but the implementation scientists tell us that it's about fidelity. Mm -hmm. So at at this point I said, look, we need to add some science to this area. And I, first of all, want to figure out, is it true that what happens in the small is different than the large, right? That was their first contention. And on that score, Peter, they were exactly right. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It typically is the case that what happens in the small is very different than what happens in the large.
1: How did you, what kind of studies did you do to study that?
0: Yeah. So we began with economic theory Mm -hmm. and that economic theory helped to give us a lens into why that might be happening so just like you i view economic theory as a guide in where to look in the data and i like to think about it as i'm entering a dark room and the economic theory at least gives me a flashlight Mm -hmm. and, and i have a chance to look so we started looking at a lot of different data in fact i have now started up a center here at the harris public policy school at the University of Chicago called the Center for Impact Sciences that is just built around the idea of finding DNA within ideas that will lead it to scale and finding DNA in ideas that lead it to fail to scale. So Mm -hmm. it was really, it started with theory and kind of some of the theoretical implications are sort of interesting. So for example, if you think about the incentives for researchers like us and and you think about our objective function, our objective function is probably two parts. And this is kind of the way we write down the model. The first part is I want to create results that are replicable. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, some people are like that. That's good. And the second part of that objective function is I want to create results that are noteworthy and that will get published in big journals. Mm -hmm. So you hear this all the time, right? Right, You need to have big journal publications, otherwise you don't get tenure. Yep. Okay, so our initial theoretical models written down like that, they suggest that as long as researchers place a non-zero weight on that second component, the component of I want to have big treatment effects because I need to publish in the top five journals, I need to get grant money, et cetera, et cetera, there will be a voltage effect. And in particular, just because of that reason, when you scale an idea from the academy to the large, that alone will cause a voltage drop. Okay. So, we scour the data, look at a bunch of medical data, look at a bunch of business, a bunch of government programs in early childhood, et cetera, et cetera. And what we find is that the policymakers were correct in nearly every case. It looked great in the Petri dish, but when they scaled it, it wasn't so great. That's what I call the voltage effect. And that's why I've titled the book the voltage effect, because it's describing the difference in our program's efficacy or our program's effectiveness from the small to the large. And I think it's really the first law of scaling is what I would call the voltage effect, because nearly every time it happens. Now, where the policymakers were wrong is that it's not a silver bullet problem. Recall, they said, John, your idea doesn't have a silver bullet. And really in economies, the way Peter, you and I think about it is a best shot technology, which means you produce a lot based on one key input. Mm -hmm. That's exactly wrong. In fact, scaling is more akin to a weakest link problem. And what I mean by that is think about airport security. Your, your airplane is only as secure as the weakest link in the safety ladder. So if the, the endpoint is really weak, your plane's going to be very unsafe. If mm-hmm. the beginning of the safety net is, is weak, your plane will be uh, unsafe. This is scaling, and what I essentially did then is, upon scouring the data and ideas that did scale and did not scale, I was able to do an exercise that showed the five important links to whether an idea will scale come down to five vital signs, mm-hmm. and that's what I talk about in the front half of the book is. What are the five vital signs or the five key signatures to every idea, either scaling or failing to scale? And then that's what I describe in in the first half of the Voltage Effect.
1: Right. I really like how you um, you know took the took the policymakers seriously. I feel like as economists we have a little bit of a schizophrenic viewpoint towards people in policy and business, like. On the one hand, we have lots of models that assume that they're super smart and rational, and that they're following their incentives and they understand their environment. And then on the other hand, you know, as professors and researchers, we think, you know, sometimes smugly that like everyone else is dumb and they don't get it, and we need to teach them how stuff really works. And I feel like, you know, those are those are intention, and usually neither is entirely true. You know, some, but, and it's very important. And sometimes I think we tend more often to neglect when we're actually facing, you know, in, in our theories, we assume everyone's really smart, but then when we actually get a person in front of us, we're, we're very happy to just sort of lecture them and tell them what's what. Um, And I think having that kind of uh, not, not naive, but, you know, modest view of like, okay, if you say stuff is not going to work and you can't quite articulate why, but you're probably right that you have this, you have this, you know, personal experience that it doesn't work. And so now how can we, you know, test this, this uh, intuition that the policymaker has and, uh, and then also, you know, try to make it, you know, make it more, uh, more systematic and gather evidence around it.
0: No, I, I think that's right. That's a great point. And, and we should oftentimes consider whether our models are normative or positive. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't always assume <laughs> that what's going on in a normative model is necessarily uh, the truth. And and I think your point about learning is is spot on, Peter, because... When I thought then more deeply about scaling, I started to go back to my roots, which was early 90s at baseball card conventions. And what you said earlier was right. External validity or generalizability is a piece of this. But typically when people talk about external validity, they're talking about subject pools. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about, well... That worked with students in a lab, but does it work with non-students? Occasionally they talk about the environment, right? They say, well, it's an artificial environment. And if you were in the real world, it might not work. Mm -hmm. But it's never really well articulated in terms of, you know, what are the differences between preferences, beliefs, and constraints between our research setting and our target setting? I never hear that kind of discussion, and and I hope that my book, in some small way, can help to move not only the scaling discussion, but also the external validity discussion to a higher ground and something that is more scientific. Because these types of discussions, whether it's with a policymaker, a for-profit firm, a non-profit firm, federal government, local government, state government, the scaling and external validity questions are ubiquitous. And we have to begin to be serious about the science of taking an innovation or an idea from the Petri dish all the way up to scale. Now, now when I talk to hard scientists, they don't have the same kinds of problems that we have because an atom is an atom is an atom. And with us, a human is not a human is not a human, there's a lot of heterogeneity. And when you cross that heterogeneity with the very, very different types of situations that people find themselves in and how those situations drive behaviors in very important and many times predictable ways, we need to account for that because we're dealing with humans. And dealing with humans, you have an entirely different tract of land compared to the hard scientists when it comes to external validity or scaling.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know we're uh, the the epidemiologists and the uh, you know medical doctors have a little bit of our problem in the sense that you know they do have to deal with uh, with human behavior, but uh, but even then it tends to be much more isolated. Whereas you know a lot of the situations you mentioned, it's you know, there's a a broader impact to sort of a society around even the individuals who are receiving the treatment. Um, So actually, why don't you, you you mentioned, you know, you've got several different ways in which scaling can can fall short. But um, why don't you talk about that one first, or this idea of general equilibrium effects? I think that's a very nice example of something that you could study experiments, I think, pretty much all day long from, you know, any textbook in the natural sciences. And I think even most of medicine and not come up against this issue.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good point. So when you think about spillovers, spillovers are a very rich area in terms of if you have a policy or a treatment, there are many different spillovers that you need to be potentially concerned about. And I start off this chapter talking about Sam Peltzman. And many people don't remember Sam Peltzman. Sam's one of my colleagues at the University of Chicago here, he's over in the Booth Business School. And Sam did some great work in 1975 that was basically an exploration of the 1968 seatbelt laws that we had here in America. Now, a lot of the youngsters might not realize this, but before 1968, there were a lot of automobiles that did not have seatbelts. And mm-hmm. a lot of people might say, wow, that you, you were living like cavemen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's hard to believe, yeah, these days.
0: It is hard to believe. But um, Ralph Nader wrote some very scathing uh, words in his 1965 book about how we have way too many traffic fatalities because the federal government has not been serious about traffic safety. And in response, the federal government enacted legislation in 1968 that said every new vehicle has to have a seatbelt installed. And of course, the new vehicle manufacturers said, well, wait, this is really expensive. And the federal government said, yes, it is, but we will save so many lives that it's worth it. So that law started in 1968 and 1975 rolls around. Sam Peltzman writes an academic paper that essentially says, look, you have made seatbelts mandatory, but it it has saved zero lives. And what's come to be known as the Peltzman effect, what he argued was it didn't save any lives because people who were wearing seatbelts began to drive more aggressively. And that undid the mandatory seatbelt rule that was invoked in 1968. So that's one kind of spillover. That's a dramatic kind of spillover, but it's one kind.
1: So so do people still think I mean I, I could see that there'd be, you know, a mitigating or you know, compensating kind of effect but but is is the sense still that, you know, I mean that was 1975, so obviously, you know, the first the first the first stab at a research question isn't always the the, the right answer. Um, you know, is is all of the everything we've done with making cars safer over the past uh uh, what is it now, 50 years since, uh, since yeah. the Ralph Nader? Was that all pointless? Are we all just getting accidents at the same rate? No,
0: no, I don't think so. Um, so I think a lot of the safety features have exactly, as you said, have this compensating factor. But but certainly it's not completely undone in the way that Sam argued. Mm-hmm. I, I think there are many safety features that are quite effective. I think the, the broader point of The Peltzman effect and of my chapter to start off with this example is that before putting out estimates, you should do the best you can to think about the potential spillovers that will happen Mm -hmm. because this kind of spillover, it is ubiquitous. I I found it with um, bicyclists who were wearing bike helmets when I worked in the White House.
1: Mm -hmm. I, I
0: worked with the EPA And I found a Peltzman effect, which was bicyclists were driving or riding more aggressively when they wore helmets. But I also found another effect, which was motor vehicles were driving closer to bicyclists who had helmets. So those two features helped to undo some of the safety effect, but not all of it. Mm -hmm. You you are still... um, Definitely in our data, you you are safer wearing a bike helmet. So, but I think the broader point is there are spillovers. And then on the other end of the extreme in the chapter, I talk about market-wide spillovers. Mm -hmm. And in here, you can think of several examples that happened to me when I was a chief economist at Uber. So we tried various things to raise driver pay. Right? We always want to raise driver pay. We want to make drivers better off. Mm-hmm. So we did things like we added tipping in the app. So we did that in the summer of 2017. My team at Uber was partly responsible for rolling out tipping on the app. We tried things like changing the rate card. And what that means is on Uber and Lyft, everyone is paid by the amount of time and distance that you have somebody in your back seat. So, we experimented with raising the rate card for drivers. And this is a great paper that your listeners should go in and read. It's by John Horton and co authors. What they find is in the long run, because of entry, you end up undoing the entire rate card effect. And hourly wages are the same. That's essentially what we find with tipping as well. So these are market-wide or general equilibrium effects that come along with ideas that have also been largely meant to undo the good stuff. So we need to take account of that when we put out our idea and we estimate whether our idea will work or not.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess to, to maybe just, just restate, I think you're saying with the, the sort of Pelsman effect, part of it is, you know, recognizing that, you know, people are not data points. They're not, you know, they're not atoms moving around. They, they notice what you're doing to them and they don't just get, you know, incrementally affected by it in the direction that you push them. They sometimes push back or, you know, do other kinds of strategic responses once they... Uh, you know, understand that their their environment has changed or the incentives they've faced have changed. And then uh, the the point about, you know, entry just for, again, like these are things that are all sort of straightforward once you had some economics background. But, you know, the first thought, I think if you ask more people on the street, like if you pay Uber drivers more, will they earn more money? The answer would be, well, of course, right? Just, you know, how could it be anything but? It's just tautologically true. But, you know, that that nuance of, yeah, if you pay them more, then you make that job more attractive, and since Uber is, especially because Uber is, you know, in this platform role as opposed to being an employer, right? If, if McDonald's has, you know, 100 restaurants with whatever, 20 people per restaurant and it pays them more money, then every McDonald's employee will in fact earn more money. But if you if you raise the prices uh, paid at Uber, then now more people will decide, okay, actually, I would like to spend a few hours a week um, right. earning some cash this way and that the net effect for the people who are already in there. Um, as you said, it sounds like it it netted out to zero because, you know, that's, uh, they already, they already wanted to do it. And now some more people would want to do it.
0: Yeah. And they want to do it a few more hours. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so you're exactly right. So you've pinpointed exactly on the one hand, it's an individual who is affecting the outcome, in the other hand, it comes through a market and mm-hmm. uh, a new market equilibrium. And then there are kind of in-between cases that I talk about in the chapter, but we don't need to, to dig into those. But the, the broader point is is that economics can can help a lot in these cases. And I'm going to take your statement even a step further. What you said was when you talk to somebody on the street, they will think that. If you do that, wages will go up. Mm -hmm. I'm going to double down on that and say, when I'm talking to people sitting around the Oval Office or I'm sitting around a boardroom at Lyft, many of those people will also not fully appreciate the general equilibrium effects or the behavioral effects of the policies that they're talking about.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So this is about much more than just uh, a truck driver.
1: Right, right. Sorry. Yeah, I didn't mean to. Yeah, I guess uh, no, I'm thinking that. man of the street in San Francisco, which like, you know, uh, is a great range of people, but it's as likely to include a, uh, you know, someone working at a tech firm um, and sitting you know in their in their board as it yeah. is uh, someone who's, uh, you know, uh, selling the wares on the street or whatever else. Um, exactly. So, uh, okay. So, yeah, so this leads into actually, you mentioned, you know, um, in the book, you talked about. Um, how we shouldn't do uh, evidence-based policy um, yeah. and I've noticed from from Twitter and elsewhere I've seen there's a fair amount of confusion about what you're trying to get across with that um, idea and actually when I taught the book in a class also I asked the students and they said oh definitely evidence-based policy right evidence-based medicine is you know better medicine evidence-based policy must be better policy so so why why do you uh, want to sort of mix that up and, and yeah. say that's not yeah. the right way to do it
0: okay well let, let's let's try to be clear mm-hmm. um, Using data to help make decisions is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Now, when you talk to people about evidence-based policy, if you ask 30 people what it means, you will get 30 different definitions, mm-hmm. whether it's a policymaker or a business person. But effectively, what they're trying to say is, use data to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I'm not saying not to use data. Let's be clear. Now, here's what I'm saying, though. When you think about the knowledge creation market and the way it's set up, and you think about our current way that we conduct experiments, here's what we do. We do an A, B. And what I mean by that is you put some people in treatment, some in control, and you measure whether the program works. You typically do that with the best of all inputs. Here's what I mean by that. When I talked about starting the pre-K program in Chicago Heights earlier, I had to hire teachers to Mm -hmm. go into the classrooms. Steve Levitt and I had a disagreement about the types of teachers we should hire. Steve took the typical academic approach of we better hire the best teachers because Ken Griffin just gave you $20 million to run this program and you can't take back a null effect to Ken. We can't put all of this work in and report a zero effect of our program. We have to give the program its best shot and create big treatment effects. Mm -hmm. Steve was not on a limb here. That's exactly how we do business. Mm -hmm. That's how every academic does business, why? Because they need top journal publications. So they give their idea and their program its best shot. But what they do is they write up that paper, which is an efficacy test. No other way to define it. It's an outright efficacy test. But then they forget to tell everyone else it was an efficacy test.
1: Wait, so that's that's language from medicine. So why don't you go through what what an efficacy test is?
0: is I've just used the best of all inputs and I'm showing you the result of my program. If I think about Chicago Heights, I got the best teachers, I got the best administrators, I um, got the best of every possible input, curriculum, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, cetera, that I could get. And then I found a big treatment effect. I might even drawn from a certain population of kids, right? Certain population that could be helped. Mm -hmm. Okay. So an efficacy test is giving your idea its best shot. That is essentially what we do as social scientists, because that's the way the market is set up. Okay. Okay. What I'm saying is if you want to do that, that's fine, but you should have a subtreatment that you include that I call a policy based arm. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is I want on in that arm, all of the warts and constraints that you will face at scale. And I want those placed in that arm. And I want to call that the policy arm or the scaling arm. And I want you to show me, does your program work when you bring in all of the warts and all of the constraints that you will face at scale? That's what I call policy-based evidence. So I'm not saying scrap all the other stuff. It's great that we use data. What I'm saying is if you just stop from, from, let's say, the Petri dish is just about an efficacy test, you have answered the wrong question. You have answered the question that goes as follows. If you use the best of all inputs in your Petri dish, do you find a big treatment effect? That's not the question that we need at scale. If you're truly about changing the world at scale... You should be asking, does my idea work when I put the real constraints that I'm going to place, whether it's a home visitor, whether it's a teacher, whether it's the types of people, what have you, what resource constraint, infrastructure constraint, etc. If I bring those back into the Petri dish, does my idea still work? If it doesn't, reconfigure and don't scale. If it does, great. Now you have some science that shows when I go from a best case scenario to a realistic scenario, maybe I don't lose so much or maybe I lose nothing and then I can scale it. I'm, I'm now using science to tell policymakers what we should scale rather than using guesswork or art which is essentially what you're doing in the current way we do evidence-based policymaking. Peter, does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Although I think maybe on, on, uh, I haven't done these experiments myself. So just, but on behalf of the people who do, I think there might be a couple. And that's
0: me by the way, <laughs> Peter, this is me too. So right, 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 right. Yeah. So you're not, you're not, your not casting,
1: you, or you are casting stones from your own glass I'm house or whatever. They're they're self. Yeah. Um, okay. yeah. So uh, I think there's, um, I mean you know Steve Lovett's point right that, that you do there's sort of you you, you it make it sound like it should be at the initial stage but i suppose it's more yes, ideally it seems thing. like but it seems like you might for two reasons one thing it you know it'd be it makes some sense to do the initial stage under the kind of ideal conditions you know just as like you might first test your you know antibiotic in a petri dish on the bacterium before you just sort of like put it in someone's body and see whether it works there. But you need to have both steps. But that first stage, like you said, it's efficacy. It shows, you know, because honestly, like we have lots of ideas that we think are super smart and we convince ourselves of. And then even in these ideal scenarios, they fail, right? So I think there's an element of it's from a funder's perspective or whatever to say, okay, you did your one trial and our ideal scenario. And so that works. Now, maybe then you, before you just, roll this thing out, you know, uh, with lots of hubris and roll it out to the whole country or you know tell them to give you a billion dollars for it, then you do need to do the the policy-based evidence step of saying, okay, now without these optimal resources, will it still work? But I think even then, you know, that that gives you the the a little more nuance of like if it does fail at this level of scaling, then you could say, "Oh, you know what? Actually, it is only going to work if we get really the best teachers or if we, you know, cherry-pick certain students who are most uh you know in a in a relatively supportive family environment so they're actually will, will flourish you know with the the kind of uh you know additional resources we can give them um but that still seems like it's it's worth knowing just you don't want to be you know rushed too fast to to oversell your thing um when you're when you're going to scale and i think that's, also people in business have the same thing
0: right? look what you're saying is all well and fine but here, here's the problem economically like in theory, you're, what you're saying is right,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but here's the economically the the issue that you face is that there are a bunch of fixed cost that you have to absorb for these types of programs, and if just think about Chicago Heights. Mm-hmm. So, do you really think after we find the big result, running it from 2010 to 2014, we publish everything, we tell the policymakers to. Rush out and do it. Do you honestly think they're going to stop and say, Wait a second, we want you to run it now with a policy arm that will get started? That will be double cost. Mm -hmm. That will get started three years later. You'll get results a decade or more after the initial results. So now you have these macro arguments about, well, there's different macro conditions, different labor supply conditions, parents couldn't be around as much. Etc. cetera, et cetera, you, you, it will just never happen. It works in medicine because doing efficacy phase one, phase two, phase three can be very quick mm-hmm. and, and it can work fast. It, it won't work for many ideas. And look, all I'm saying is add a treatment arm. Let's be clear about what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that you have to redo your entire experiment. I'm literally saying add a treatment arm so what what does that mean it means literally what i just said we had seven treatment arms in check and we never did a policy-based treatment arm Hmm. and if your idea is potentially a scalable one we all make decisions about treatment arms in the beginning Mm -hmm. so what i'm saying is if it's a multi-site trial for example that's easier you know, at, at Uber or Lyft, it's easy to do this. In some cases, it's harder, um, but it's a treatment arm. So if if you're about scaling, if if you're making the argument that, John, we can't afford because of power reasons or we need different treatment arms, I'm going to say we should rethink whether we're serious about wanting to scale something. I'm asking for a policy-based treatment arm. That's it mm-hmm yeah, I guess,
1: right no and I guess the other thing is like you said it depends on the time frame of what you're doing right if it's a four-year experiment with you know uh impacts on people's lives right. that may even be measured over a longer period then that really you know gets gets insanely long I could imagine maybe something more like you know a smaller kind of a b test kind of scenario within a firm like hey let's try yeah, this city exactly. whether some you know tipping maybe uh, that that yeah. might have been something you could roll out in one city and say oh hey it works or oh hey shoot Now we learned, you know, from the experiment, we learned that there's something that doesn't work. And so before we roll it out to the rest of the country, we need to think about like other experiments we can do to figure out like, how do we, I guess, I guess that this movie, the the optimistic idea, like, okay, if we, if we see it, if we see it works in a small scenario, then that gives us more optimistic optimism that it's worth investing more in a larger scale experiment. And then if it doesn't work, then that may also lead us to, you know, Think about like okay, how can we? You know, what is it that failed, and and how can we? How can we change that?
0: Yeah, and let's be clear. So you're right that that's exactly what we do at Uber and Lyft, right? We try it in a small market, we see if it works, and we expand, and we try it in some bigger markets. Now, the the one concern that I have is in many cases, once whether it's a government official or a CEO. A lot of times if they see an initial pretty big spark,
1: mm-hmm.
0: they will want to move much, much faster than you can ever imagine.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and there, it, it even, so I agree with your sequencing in that case, but there is a condition where you might want to know some of the fatal flaws or the warts before going because you might quickly get a rollout that's um, happening much more uh, rapidly than what you can ever imagine in Mm -hmm. in a firm. And this happened to me at Chrysler, right? I talk about that in, in chapter one on false positives Mm. about Chrysler, the Chrysler CEO wanted to run very fast. And we said, let's hold on and try to make sure it's not a false positive. So, People are, are not immune to false positives. And if you can have a little bit of a checking device in there, it's um, helpful in many cases.
1: Right. No, that is true. That, that uh, yeah, again, you're sort of facing the policymakers. You have, on the one hand, you don't want them to be, you know, we started out talking about the policymakers who are going to be too skeptical. They're going to see yep. your success, and ignore it. But then the flip side is maybe they'll see your success and and roll it out faster than, than, than is wise. Um, so, yeah, it sounds like a, a tricky a tricky balance.
0: Yeah. But there's a, there, there's like a balance here and it depends on the kind of experiment. I think where we've, where we've settled is that before you scale, it's important to understand, does your idea work with the constraints and warts that it's going to face at scale? I, I think we can both agree with that, right? Mm-hmm. That's called policy-based evidence in my book. Mm-hmm. And where you do it, Of course, I advocate doing it up front as one more treatment arm, but you don't have to do it up front. You can do uh, a little market in in uh, part of Seattle like we do at Lyft, and then expand it, and then add the policy based arms while you do that. No problem. Mm -hmm. But in many cases, I think if we get in the habit of thinking right away that I want a policy based arm, that's going to give us the necessary information with certainty rather than have to rely on the market giving us replications. Mm-hmm. Because as you know, Peter, it is very difficult to get young people, middle-aged people, older people to actually do replications because they're not highly valued in economics. Mm-hmm. So I, I fear that if we rely on the market, giving us replications, like trying to do phase one, phase two, phase three for us. Mm -hmm. And then there's no publication to be had to speak of because no good journals will publish it. And it's not funded well because very few people are funding replications. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering where those replications are going to come from and where that policy evidence is in a practical sense going to come from. So that's why I'm proposing just do it as a treatment arm
1: right no yes yeah so i think you know you're you're coming from a place of practical experience with this and so i think uh yeah i get i get what you're saying um there's sort of an ideal that i can make up in my head but then when we get down to actually like real people and real funding and real you know researchers who i mean it kind of goes both ways This both within, a, within academia there's the researchers who uh want to you know want to get their publications out and then i think also in you know the private sector um there's also you know you want to have you want to have your win and you want to have your right. uh exactly. you know your new business innovation whatever it is you know succeed and you know either either your venture gets funded or you know your branch of the company gets you know rewarded and you get promoted uh, it's all sort of um everyone's kind of on much more short-term incentives than than in principle we'd think might be optimal
0: 100 percent, i agree with that
1: um, so, so we just have a, a few minutes left. So I was wondering if um, uh, you could tell us more, you told us a little bit about, you know, some of the things you did uh, at Uber, and then you went to work for for Lyft for a few years. And now I know you just joined uh, Walmart. So it's, it's you know, first of all, it's really exciting to hear, you know, that um, they're interested in hiring someone like you. I know that the tech sector has been kind of, you know, at the, the leading edge of saying, you know, recognizing that First of all, the data science is a thing, and incorporating that because they're kind of awash in data, and there's you know full of software engineers who get data, um, and then moving from that to saying, okay, data is one thing, but data about people is not the same as all other data in, in all the ways that we were just talking through. Um, and it sounds like you know now, kind of the the economy at large is also going in that direction. So, um, so what can you tell me about? Like, what what are you what are you planning to do at Walmart, or what are they looking for you to do? How did that How did that come about?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. So I, I don't have a good read yet on exactly what we're going to do. The The team will start May 2nd mm-hmm. and it will likely be a team of about 10 people that I build to start. And when the opportunity arose, you know, it was hard to leave lift on the one hand. It was It was super difficult to leave because the leadership at Lyft, Logan Green and John Zimmer and the others are just tremendous people. And the data scientists and people who are trying to change the world at Lyft are just all in. Mm -hmm. So couple that with we were doing pretty cool scientific research And you've seen some of the papers A value of time across the United States. Uh, There'll be new papers coming out as well Mm -hmm. from Lyft. I'm super excited about those papers. But when um, the opportunity arose at Walmart and it was the CEO reaching out to me, it, it was actually a potential research lab and a potential way to affect in a very positive way, our broader economy. Mm -hmm. I decided to take a shot at it. So this was really about, you know, every day I was working at Lyft was wonderful, but it was one less day I could be chief economist at Walmart. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to people who quit jobs, they always tell you, bad stuff about the previous job like my boss no longer appreciated me i didn't get the promotion i have bad co-workers and and then i looked for a job right most of the time people neglect their opportunity cost of time mm-hmm. as economists peter you and i don't so you think that every day i'm a professor living in san francisco is a day i can't be a professor or working somewhere else that, mm-hmm. that's right so for me, it just became my opportunity set. In particular, the opportunity at Walmart became so great that I was drawn to it. Now, would I be lying if I said the scientific sandbox is just so attractive and I want to go give it a shot? Of course, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, because re- remember, I'm, I'm still a University of Chicago professor. So I'm going there essentially as a consultant and I'm building a team as a consultant and then a person who will help out you know where where do i think i'm going to help i think i'll be able to help with pricing i think i'll be able to help on the labor side i think i'll be able to help in the pharmacy i think i'll be able to help on the hr side i think i'll be able to help with the last mile delivery so walmart has a lot of things to do they're a great company of course but they have a lot of things to do but the fact that their footprint is all around us. Mm -hmm. And they live so close to where all the rest of us live, the the Walmart family and the Walmart stores, that you have a lot of opportunity to take back a lot of the market share that has been taken by others, both on the grocery side and on the non-grocery side. Mm -hmm. So I think on the business side, that's pretty attractive, but it was really about science for me. And it was about what are the new scientific puzzles that Walmart will present, and that I can not only help solve for them, but I can write about as an academic, and I can write books about or write academic articles about?
1: So are they can... comfortable with uh, with you? I mean, I assume it, you know it's always a little bit case by case, but I know some some firms, for instance, are are happy to you know bring in economists or, or academics, but but they don't want you talking about, let alone publishing anything on. Uh, you know, anything you do, you know, in some cases they can get some, some blowback for it if it doesn't look the right way when it hits the, the New York times. So, um, yeah, what's, how is Walmart's uh, perspective on that?
0: No, you're absolutely right. If they would not allow publishing, I would not go there. Okay. So a necessary condition for me, and this goes all the way back to when I first talked to Amazon about being their chief economist in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, they said, no outside research will be published. Mm-hmm. And I perfectly understood that. That's their prerogative. Right. They want me to come in and be the chief economist. And their rule is, you're going to help us save the world, but you're not going to be able to publish it in scientific journals. So I said, no. Mm-hmm. And I didn't go there. And when Uber came along and said, look, we heard that you were close to taking the Amazon job, but the science was the straw that caused you not to take it. They said, you can come here and be our chief economist and we will allow you to publish papers. So I said, I'm in. Because I think using field experiments in partnership with firms is one of the very important pieces of not only the future of field experiments in economics, but also the the future of unlocking a lot of puzzles and deeper scientific mysteries that we don't have solutions for. I think working with firms will give us a shot to answer questions we've never been able to take on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely been uh, really, uh, really exciting to, you know, read and teach the, uh, the papers you've done from your your time at Uber and Lyft, um, you know, and I always highlight to the students sort of there's, there's kind of the, the practical element of like, you know, how do we make this business? Uh, you know, work better, serve its customers and other stakeholders better, uh, but also there, you know, in, e- in each of the papers, you have more of a, a general, you know, theoretical or social point that you're that you're getting at that kind of contributes to, um, yeah, advancement of sort of social science knowledge in, in a broader way.
0: I'm so so you just warmed my heart. I'm so glad that you brought that up because that's exactly the point. So look at this most recent value of time paper across the United States. You know, it was a really neat field experiment to run. We randomized prices and ETAs across customers. And if you assume weak complementarity, you can get a value of time estimate for consumers. And that value of time estimate is very important for policymakers. And when you think about infrastructure investments and the like, we have to do benefit cost analysis on these dollars that we're spending and if we don't have good estimates of value of time, you end up having very, very ill investment profiles. So I'm really glad you brought that up because that's the point. The, the mm-hmm. point of course is you're gonna help the firm check, but this is about much, much, much bigger things than helping the firm. It's about creating science and it's about helping broader society.
1: Okay, just a little technical glitch there. Um, so, John, that's uh, about all the time we have. I really appreciate this uh, chance to talk to you and, and learn about the book. Um, again, the title is "The Voltage Effect: How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale" by John A. List, the economist from University of Chicago, and uh, now also uh, at Walmart from time to time. And um, I encourage everyone to, to go out and get a copy. Whether you're uh, an MBA trying to like get out there and, and make uh, make real things happen in the in the business world, or an economist doing research uh, or a public policymaker uh, looking to, you know, draw from all those smart people in academia, but make sure that uh, the stuff we're selling you is uh, is really something that'll work when you, when you bring it to the real world at a large scale. Um, so thank you very much, John.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Peter. And again, I, I really do appreciate your support. Thank you so much.